Hello, you're listening to the China Current with me, James Chow. This week's podcast is all about gender equality. Many people refer to it as a debate. I like to call it a community and a movement because it's something that we all need to achieve together. About a year and a half ago, I got a call from two friends of mine, Sarah Hawkes and Kemp Hughes. They are the co-founders of Global Health Fifty Fifty, and at that time, they brought together a coalition of friends. And advisors to help steer the leadership through the initial stages of Fifty Fifty. We've remained together since. Our advisory family is made up of fantastic figures、uh, like Helen Clark and、uh, Dr. Sinait of the World Health Organization, and. And being part of that also makes you question yourself: What can I bring? And then, how will it help? Deliver on the goals of Global Health 5050. Well, the goal is here to bridge evidence and policy change through what it describes as a unique model that is a collective of researchers, strategists, communicators, and advocates. So I came on board. I was delighted to. We've just put out our second report in Addis in Ethiopia, and with that second report, it brought me over to New York, where I had the opportunity to sit down with. Kent, and also with Ruth Lawler, who is a key part of the Global Health Fifty Fifty Coalition. Ruth brings so many skills to that. She's currently a PhD candidate in history at Cambridge, but when we met in New York, she took the train down from New Haven, where she's now based at Yale as a Fox International Fellow. Her work centers on race, on gender, and the United States, and there's a particular focus on sexual. Violence. Kent, as some of you will already know, is a senior figure at UNAIDS. He's been with the United Nations for a number of years now. He's a senior advisor there to the executive director. He's originally from Canada. He completed his PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which many of you know is headed by Peter Piot. He's also taught at Yale, so there's a cross point there with Ruth. And his work on his own and with Sarah's. Literally taken him around the world and through the different continents. His focus is community organizing, human rights, and the politics at the core of the response to AIDS, and how that should drive the wider response to non-communicable diseases. So we sat down for that conversation, and this is the conversation that transpired. We're here to speak about Fifty Fifty, about equality. But perhaps Ruth, we could start off with you. You're born in Ireland, and you grew up in Waterford, which we all know is extremely famous for its crystals. So, if you look inside your Waterford crystal ball, what will gender equality look like to you in, say, ten years from now? I think. Uh, gender will mean that the resources and structures are in place for women、uh, around the world to be able to achieve their full potential. So that means、um, the material structures like equal pay,、uh, time off for uh, maternal uh, leave, and also for fathers to take、uh, paternity leave. Ruth, I've been following you on Twitter for a short while, and one of your recent tweets came about in March when. Global Health Fifty Fifty launched their report. You were 
a big part of the research. And in that tweet, you wrote, so thrilled to be part of such an incredible and important project. Please do take a few moments today to have a look at our findings. So what would you say are one or two of the key findings that you want everyone to know about? Thanks, James, for your kind words there. I think two of the most important findings from the report are first that the major difference perhaps that we saw between last year's report and this year's report in terms of uh, the research results was that many organisations had adopted a standalone gender policy which demonstrated a new commitment to gender and while we were very pleased to see that we also noticed that it didn't necessarily mean that those organisations were uh, is it talking the walk as we say um, and so I think uh, going forward it would be good to see those gender approaches being streamlined into the main body of uh, programmatic work that the organisations do and I think the second most important uh, thing that, that uh, readers will notice when they read the report is the connections that exist between the various areas that we focused on. So you'll notice we look at um, parental leave, we look at sexual harassment policy and the gender pay gap. And while those come across discreetly perhaps in the report, the idea that we're trying to convey is that all of them are linked. So when you notice that uh, there are very few women at the top of global health organisations. You realise through reading the report that the gender pay gap, uh, a toxic environment for example in some organisations that don't have good sexual harassment policies and unfair or inadequate maternal and paternal leave sustain that inequality at the top and we hope going forward that organisations who have read uh, our report will take that into consideration and by changing those things can change the ultimate outcome for uh, women and men in global health. As you were conducting the important research that went into this report, did any of it surprise you as a person? I was not surprised to find that men uh, are at the top of global health organisations. That's something that uh, is common across uh, multiple industries. It's the same in, in academia as well. Uh, more surprising perhaps is that men often dominate organisations that are ostensibly about women's health. Um, and um, perhaps also that the gender pay gap is as large as it is in many organisations, but also is not transparent. So we don't know um, if organisations are not required to report this data by law. We don't know what their gender pay gaps are. And I think that is uh, surprising and troubling. Kent, I'm going to ask you the same question before we take the deep dive into further issues. Were you surprised? You've had a distinguished career in academia, including here in the United States. You've worked internationally for the United Nations. You've created Global Health 5050 with your partner, Sarah Hawkes. Were you surprised in the same way that Ruth has expressed? James, um, thanks for having us here. Thanks for the conversation. And to be honest with you, no. Yeah, a few details here and there, perhaps. But Sarah and I have been working on gender-related issues for about 25 years. And we've been setting up clinics. We've been doing quite practical work around gender and gender equality in the health sector. And we've also been looking at the data um, on gender in global health and publishing that data in peer-reviewed journals like The Lancet, which is a high-impact factor journal. Um, and um, 
So we had a good picture, but we were very frustrated and very concerned that global health wasn't facing up to the evidence that we already knew so well, Sarah and I. So no big surprises for us. But we were aware that the evidence doesn't speak for itself. And that's really why we set up Global Health 5050 about a year and a half ago. We thought that there was a moment, a window of opportunity to get that evidence to a wider audience. And so here we're sitting with Ruth, who's a doctoral student at Yale University, so incredibly well-educated, does gender work, and she was surprised at what she found when she did the research. Um, so here we have someone who's quite well-informed, who, who isn't aware of the detail. Sarah and I were very well aware of the detail, but we thought we needed a more strategic approach to getting the wider global health community to appreciate that evidence, and we thought it would be best to do it through a vehicle like Global Health 5050. You talk about the moment, and I feel that it's a historic one as well. I wrote as part of the aftermath or the build-up to the report as one of your many advisors that I felt that gender equality has to be so much more than just a hashtag or a retweet. But certainly, um, there, there is a moment, as you said, Kent, and Ruth, I, I see you nodding as well, that needs to be drawn out and, and taken. What is this moment? What, what has allowed it to crystallize it into a fully mainstream discussion today where no one's going to ignore you or dismiss you for raising the words gender equality as they may have done before? I think for an awful lot of people, uh, 2016 changed things and the Me Too movement changed things and brought gender out of the darkness to some degree and into the light. And so we've been able to um, capitalise on that moment, I suppose, for society more broadly by saying time's up as well for these kinds of unequal structures in global health organisations. And one of the key messages that we try to convey in the report is you can't change what you can't see. And Kent is absolutely right in that respect that we need the, the data and the hard evidence behind the message that we've all known for very long to be true. And we hope that by providing that information that there's no way we can stand over the way things are right now. Kent, how are we going to make the moment last, uh, and Ruth as well, how are we going to stretch out this moment so it, it's not like an elastic band that just uh, boings back into the starting position, but rather a moment that then becomes a permanent fixture? I think that um, we want to take advantage of the moment to bring about transformational change and that um, we're hoping, I would have thought, that Me Too can go away, that Time's Up can go away. But for it to go away, we need profound societal transformation around gender equality. And Global Health 5050 sought to bring the evidence around gender in global health into the public domain in a way that it hadn't been put in the public domain. And by that, I mean, not keeping it in peer-reviewed journals, but rather putting out a report that looked at in, in, in detail at the gender-related policies and practices of the most influential global organizations 
interested in health or influencing health. And um, by putting that information in the public domain and using champions like yourself, James, to amplify the message, we not only hope, but we're also finding that global health organizations are responding. And so I think that that transformation is happening in global health organizations. I don't think it's going to happen overnight because we need a cultural change as well. But I think that we're well on the way to making a change, if that, if that answers your question. So I think that there was a moment. We took advantage of the moment. A lot of change still needs to happen. But the, the question that you asked Ruth about where should this be in 10 years, hopefully, we'll have, hopefully we won't be having this conversation that we're having today, James. Do you think we'll be having this conversation in 10 years from now, Ruth? I think it's possible, but the advantage of something like Global Health 5050 is that when organisations adopt the kinds of measures that we've suggested they can, and many of them indeed have reached out to us um, in order to seek advice about what they can do going forward, it means that those changes might filter down to the structural and material levels at the grassroots, and the change then can become self-sustaining. It won't need outside organizations to shine that kind of spotlight anymore. So if uh, we change the way that services and programs are delivered to ordinary folks seeking health services, um, and we you know, provide for mechanisms for women to advance in their careers, uh, then hopefully things will definitely look better in, in a few years' time, even if we're not quite there yet. I am very concerned that progress should be across the global board mm-hmm. and shouldn't be restricted to uh, a handful of maybe more developed countries in the economic and political first world. Um, there is a well-known phrase in China that women hold up half the sky uh, and, and, and it conveys so many different meanings and I think it was intended in, in, in positive ways as well. Um, but there was an article on China-US Focus, uh, a platform that brings together different opinions and one was written by a scholar called Angela Zhang at Peking University. And I'm just going to quote a few words from that article where she says that um, China's current laws, in fact, she says gender equality is hailed as a fundamental state policy of China enshrined in the constitution and advanced by several laws like the women's rights protection law, labor law and employment protection law. However, these laws suffer from vague wording and weak implementation. When I think of that, I tend to agree with her, but also I think of climate change and other issues which on the political side perhaps have seen much progress, but on the implementation side, it's very difficult sometimes to make it work. It's very difficult to win people to your side, to make it more than just policy, so that it becomes a living reality for everybody, not just for women, but for men and for transgender people as well. What do you think is going to be the gentle encouragement um, in countries like China so that we can see huge leaps. James, you've, you've really touched on quite a few issues there. And uh, let me just pick up on a few. One thing I think we do need to recognize that, that policies and practices in the workplace are necessary, but they're insufficient. And so we need societal changes to support those kinds of organizational policies. And um, so on the one hand, that means that we need to change the thinking and behavior 
of all members of society, of, of people in communities and peoples and families. And so the kinds of issues that we're raising in relation to these organizations, the kinds of conversations that we're having that, that are taking place now in boardrooms um, and around the table in these organizations need to happen around dinner tables. They need to yes. happen around all tables. And I, I listened to one of your recent um, podcasts um, and it, on the issue of Chinese cuisine. And um, one of the things that strikes me is that you talked with your guest about the round table phenomenon in China and how democratic that is with the lazy Susan spinning around. And your guest said, you, have, you, become, you become aware of whether or not other people at the, at the table are holding their chopsticks and about to take some pickle, let's say. And so you become aware of a dynamic at, at your dinner table and so the kinds of issues that we that were taken into the boardroom we think need to be at every dining room table in every community in every society because we need there to be a reinforcement of a different kind of social norm and that can only take place within relationships um, relationships between men and men and men and women and within families but I think at the same time, we also need to see a change in laws and policies, as you said. Those will only be implemented once society changes its view in terms of what it thinks as normal. And Ruth and I want to get to a place in 10 years where the new normal is gender equality. And it's not going to be a, a direct line. And we already know that there's going to be pushback. Um, right now we're in New York and some member states are trying to get language around gender removed from conversations in the UN. When the UN asks for gender parity, some member states say, well, isn't that an infringement on men's rights? And we would say, no, it's a win-win. People still see this as a them and us battle. I see it as a beautiful, inclusive journey where we can all walk and advance and progress Together, gender equality, I think this is a, probably the right moment. I was going to ask you this at the beginning, Ruth, but it's, it's a very big term these days, like uh, empowerment or terms like human rights. What does gender equality mean to you? Gender equality is about everybody having what they need in order to achieve their full potential. And those kinds of needs are different for every person, sometimes for gender reasons. So for example, those who carry children uh, need different facilities than those who don't. Um, but it can also include people with disabilities, for example, they need uh, different provisions than others. And it seems that a lot of people perhaps don't recognise sometimes how constraining masculinity can be for, for men and how gender equality can also allow them to take the option to spend more time with their children if they want to, but also allow them to access health services that they need because men um, bear the burden uh, of many global diseases. Kent can probably speak more about that. Um, but, but by um, broadening the conversation to include gender across men and women and moving away from the idea that gender means women only will help everyone, I think, to achieve their potential. If we quickly hark back to what you were saying, Ken, about the lazy Susan analogy, and that was actually the brainwave of my guest, Ming Liu, um, when she was talking about the concept of food and family. You know, there was a former president of Fiji who worked and worked so hard on HIV and AIDS in his country. And he always talked about bringing not just the children, because 
he went to every secondary school or almost went to almost every secondary school in Fiji. But he said it was very important for him to have the parents inside the room as well. And in some cases, the grandparents, the grandparents will say, Mr. President, why are you teaching my children about having sex early? He says, I'm not. I'm teaching them about making good choices. Come to the class as well. So he said it was very important to have at least two generations, maybe more, so that transformation could take effect in a whole family. Do you think that's one of the way forwards for this table that you speak of here? Yeah, and so maybe the 10-year the time frame that you were speaking of, James, is, is an artificial construct, and maybe it's going to be an intergenerational, yes. an intergenerational thing. And James, you know our children, um, Salvador and Isis, and um, they look at gender in a very different way than we looked at gender when, when we were growing up. And um, the, the, as Ruth said, gender is un, unfortunately sometimes um, seen to be synonymous with women and it's sometimes seen to be synonymous with um, lifestyle issues. And what we're trying to say is that um, gender is a social construct, gender is a norm, and that we can change those norms. And when, when you asked me the question about what it means, what gender equality means, and you talked about win-win, I see it as hugely liberating um, that we break down um, these rigid notions of what it means to be a man or a woman, and that we enable people to share responsibilities with their friends and their partners um, in ways that, that make sense to them, and that um, the world is a, probably a better place when that happens. Ruth, I would like you very much, please, to tie together some of the thoughts because uh, with Kent and Sarah, uh, you've been one of the key people, uh, not only for this report, but for the early life of Global Health 5050. So we've got gender equality, we've linked that to global health. Um, there are also issues that link to climate change, which has a very strong gender aspect, for example. What are some of the clever ways in which the movement, this incredible worldwide movement, can gain in piggybacking off each other? That's a difficult question, but a really important one, because we can't segregate out issues of gender and climate change um, and race and class. Um, all of these equalities are linked because if gender equality, for example, is only equal for white women or northern women, then it's not uh, a sustaining or, or a good enough change and we can, we can hope for more. Um, as for how we can tie them together, I think it, it means that all of us have to decolonize our minds to some degree. We have to be ready to take on all of those issues together, that we can't seek change for one aspect or one group at the expense of others. We need to always bear these groups in mind together to the fullest extent that we can. When I listen to you, it makes me very proud of the visit I was telling you about going to Dublin in 2014 and, and, and beginning to understand the spirit that have created this incredible uh, country. I think that we have so much to learn from you, Ruth um, and Kent and Sarah and the incredible members, different members of the Global Health 5050 family. I know you make it an inclusive one and that you encourage everybody to participate, not just the people with a specific role within the organisation. So Ruth and Kent, what can people do now? 
I think young people can do an awful lot. Um, I have been teaching some high school students uh, in the UK recently and many of them ask me, what can I do to play a role? I usually tell them to get out on the streets. You've seen the sunrise marches, the climate change marches. That's really helpful. They can speak to their families around the dinner table. As Kent says, I've noticed changes in, in my own uh, family recently. And I think the, the key message maybe is those uh, types of grassroots actions do make a difference. Ireland is is a place that's changed extraordinarily in recent years. You know, I grew up in uh, a very Catholic uh, education where we didn't have sex education. Now there's, you know, LGBT sex education. We passed gay marriage recently. We repealed our ban on abortion. Nobody ever thought that would happen in our lifetimes. And that was because people got out and they asked their government to make these changes for them. And it has materially affected the lives of many people, men and women and transgender folks and LGBT folks. So that would be my message, I think. I, um, I'd like to compliment that. And so Ruth talks about the power of, of organizing, the power of bottom-up demand to, to bring about change. And so I want to go to the exact opposite end, even though I, I totally agree with Ruth, is that I would like people to look within themselves. And I think that gender needs to be everybody's business. And so given that we're two men sitting here with, with one woman talking about gender equality, what I'd like to ask all men and young men to do is to look at the world around them and to notice the extent to which it's a male default world. It's a, it's a world that is structured by men and for men. And I think that a huge amount of progress is possible if men step back for a moment and look at all the privileges they have. Um, and that's around gender. But Ruth brought in all these other intersectionalities or these other vulnerabilities that um, a lot of groups in society um, suffer with. But in, the, in relation to this conversation on, on gender equality, I really think men have a long way to go and they need to step up and that could start with a serious self-reflection, James. And I know you do that, James. I, I try to do that do it. all the time. I try to do it all the time. I try to. I don't always succeed, though. Kent Buse, co-founder of Global Health 5050, and Ruth Lawler, Fox International Fellow at Yale University and also at Cambridge University. Thank you both very, very much for making this happen in New York. Thank you. Thank you, James.